Well, good morning again. Thank you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 13. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, we have strategically placed some nearby under the chair. So you could grab one and follow along. We'll be on page 873. Page 873 in those black Bibles. It's Luke chapter 13. We're in a series that we're calling Meet Jesus, pictures from Luke and Acts. And what we've been doing is reacquainting ourselves with what our primary sources have to say about Jesus. What is the uh, record of the apostles? What has God left us with? Because we've got a lot of old wives' tales, a lot of myths, a lot of Sunday school tales about who Jesus was, and, and we want to evaluate firsthand um, what's, what's the original story say? Who is Jesus as presented in Scripture? As we do that, what happens is those of us that, that are already somewhat familiar with Jesus are, are going to be uh, come reacquainted and go deeper in our understanding of just how, how good he is, how good God has been to us in giving us Jesus. And for some of you, you've just never, maybe never really met Jesus, never really understood who he is in the first place. So we're just praying that this would be a great season for us in the life of our church, that we would go deeper in understanding Jesus and his goodness to us. This week, it's in Luke 13, we're calling it Jesus Meets Exclusivity, um, which is a hard word to say, so I'm going to try not to say it too much today. But Jesus meets exclusivity. It's, it's one of the things that instinctively as modern people, we don't like about the faith is the idea that it might be exclusive. And so what I want us to think about is that there are kind of a, a, there's a tension. There's some opposite poles here. There's in a sense that it is the least exclusive faith in the world and that it invites everyone to come. There's another sense in which, by modern standards, our faith in Jesus is extremely exclusive. And so we're going to kind of wrestle with those tensions. And, and even I want to just say before we start, you might be asking yourself, what is it about me as a 21st century person that doesn't like exclusivity, right? There are always cultural assumptions. There are always um, ideas and values that we just naturally kind of want to bow up to because of who we are and where we live and the time in which we live, the age in which we live. just want you to kind of be wrestling with that as, uh, as I have this week. I wrestled with this text a lot. First reading, second reading was like, why, why did I pick this text this week? I don't know, you know, when I was planning this, I don't know why I picked it, but trust that God has good stuff for us here. Um, a summary that I came across again and again as I was studying is that uh, the beginning of the text, the guy says, uh, will there be few that are saved? Will there only be a few that are saved? And a summary of, of the whole text of how a lot of commentators say Jesus answers is, um, the question is, will you be saved? So that's kind of a little nice rhyming way to summarize this that a lot of folks have, have said. We ask, will only a few be saved? Jesus asks, well, will you be saved? That's really the issue. Jesus turns it around. He makes it very, very personal. Um, so we'll read here verses 22 through 30. Luke 13, 22 through 30. Just a little setup before I get to the first verse. There's a movement in the book of Luke here that's happening where he's beginning to focus on Jerusalem and kind of a shift in, in the narrative and the story. You know, if you're reading a, a great story, you can see kind of certain shifts, movements in the narrative. And this is a movement in the book of Luke where Jesus is increasingly focused on getting to Jerusalem and what's going to happen there, right? That's the big climax of the story where Jesus dies on the cross, where the leaders of God's people, uh, the Israelites, the Jews, reject Jesus, their Messiah, and Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. So that, that's the big direction that the whole story is going. 
Uh, and this reiterates that in the first verse. Verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So it's the great reversal. Let me, let me pray for us and ask God to help us this morning. God, we, we pray for your help uh, with this text. Um, we pray that you would help us to be open-minded. Uh, we confess we're 21st century people. We, we think we've got it figured out. We think we know the nature of the universe, and, and we just confess that uh, we need to be humble. We need you to teach us. Uh, we need your spirit to meet us here so that we would understand, so that our hearts would be opened and our eyes could see your truth. And so we ask you to help us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about the exclusivity of Jesus that he's talking about here, and specifically the idea of a narrow door, I was reminded of all the times that I've explored caves over the years. Have any of you ever done some cave exploring? Some of you out there? Okay. Apparently, we have a lot more cave explorers at the 9 a.m. service. So uh, when you're going through a cave, sometimes you've got big, large passageways you could drive a car through, and other times you're kind of shimmying through a little crack between rocks, and you're going through sideways, right? And it can be a little scary because the passages are so narrow. I did this a lot in high school and in college. We'd take youth groups to the caves. We did some caving out like west of Lampasas, and we would go sometimes to Enchanted Rock and just different places where you're basically just crawling through cracks in the rocks underground. Um, and, and when we would do this, I, I would be, you know, real stripped down. I mean, it was basically a T-shirt and jeans, and that was it, right? I wouldn't wear my fanny pack. I wouldn't wear my, my backpack, especially because, you know, it was the 80s and backpacks weren't cool back then. I wouldn't wear a hat. I wouldn't wear a jacket. There was like this, you know, all these things I might want to take into the cave I would leave behind because I knew there were these tight spaces that otherwise I wouldn't be able to squeeze through. Um, I got to go back to the caves years later and bring my kids. So now instead of like a 19-year-old, I'm an eight, I'm a 30-something, 35-year-old or whatever it was, first time I brought my kids in the caves, and I have a lot more stuff, right? I'm now a dad uh, it reminds me, you know, moms of like your purse that just has like endless stuff inside it. You know, now I'm a dad with a backpack and I've got like first aid kits and I've got flashlight and I've got an extra flashlight because I know at least two of my kids are going to lose their flashlights and I've got extra water bottles in case we get trapped down there for 10 days. Um, and I've got food, you know, I and mean, I've got extra jackets in case they get cold. We've got all this stuff that I'm taking down into the cave, right? And what that meant, what that translates into is there were certain doorways in the cave we couldn't get through. I mean, there's just certain places we couldn't go. So I got to show them part of the cave, but I couldn't show them all of the cave because there were spaces that you could only squeeze through if you sucked in your breath just right, you know, and squeezed across and it still left a scrape on your ribs, right? And that just didn't work with a five-year-old and a backpack. 
And so I use that illustration to, to relate to this idea that Jesus says salvation is like that. We want to bring all this stuff, we want to bring these bags that make us feel better, that make us feel more safe, that make us feel more secure, and Jesus is saying to, to leave those bags behind and just to trust him, not to hold on to all these other things. There was an exclusivity that the Jewish people held on to. Specifically, it was their ethnic background, is that they were the great people of God. They were the ones that had the promises of God. And again and again, throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is challenging this ethnocentric thinking, saying you're not saved by just being a Jew. You're not saved by just being in the right family. You're not saved by just being in the right neighborhood or in the right little piece of geography. Jesus is forcing us to wrestle with, it's not anything about us that saves us. It's him. He's the center of the story. He's the point. So the exclusivity is rejected if it's ever about us, you know? That's, I think, what we despise most when it comes to the idea of exclusivity and elitism and our culture, when we see people that think they're better than other people, and that kind of grosses us out. And I would say, yeah, Jesus doesn't like it either because we're not better than anybody else. And there's nothing about us that makes us more savable than the next person. But Jesus says there is an exclusivity about our faith because it's about him. He's the only thing that can save us. So I want to switch with my outline because exclusivity is so hard to say. I'm just going to use the word only now from now on. Um, Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. And that's the first little hint he gives us in these first few verses, right? Um, Verse 22, he says, uh, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? There's this kind of rising tension that I already mentioned, this tension with Jesus and the religious leaders. The Jews already thought Israel is going to be saved. Everybody else not so sure. And they're now seeing that Jesus is kind of running into conflict again and again with the Jewish leaders. So now they're wondering, well, maybe it's just us guys that are hanging around Jesus, and we're the only ones that are going to be saved, you know? And so he's asking this question. So Jesus, will it just be a few? Will it just be a small little chosen group? What's the deal? How's this going to work? And I love how Jesus answers questions because he doesn't answer it directly, right? Jesus will say, I hear your question and I'm going to answer the more important thing, right? I'm going to answer the question beneath the question. So they're like, will it just be a few people that are saved? Well, he says, first of all, verse uh, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So he starts off with, well, yeah, not in the way you think, right? Maybe a few will be saved, but it's not exactly what you think. He's going to come down to the end of his question and say, really, a lot will be saved to some degree? So first of all, his answer is, there will be a lot that won't be saved, right? So the guy says, okay, will there only be a few saved? And Jesus' first answer is, well, there will be many who will try to enter and can't. So make sure you enter through the right door. And that door is narrow. Strive to enter through the narrow door. There's going to be a lot of people that do miss it. And Jesus is telling us to focus, to strain, and to strive, and to struggle to make sure we enter through the proper door. And that's why I'm calling this point, only Jesus saves, because he's making it all about him. He's making it all about him. So the exclusivity centers around Jesus. Not us, not our membership, not our ethnic background, but who Jesus is. He says, strive. This word strive is the Greek word, agonizomai, which is a cool Greek word because you can kind of hear the English in it, right? Agonizomai, what does that remind you of? Agony, 
right? So it's this common word in Greek for straining, uh, striving, wrestling. I have a picture here of guys wrestling. This would be a common word used for wrestling in the first century. Um, So it's like this athletic, you're working hard, you're sweating, you're struggling, you're striving. It's something really important. So this is a big effort word. And what we need to wrestle with is when we first hear that, we need to wrestle with, does Jesus mean only the people that sweat the most will be saved, right? Or only the people that try really, really, really hard will be saved, but the people that only tried really hard, they won't be saved? Is that what, is that what Jesus is saying? And I'd say, no, the striving is all focused on the narrow door. The striving and the struggling is focused on leave all those other things that you want to bring through the cave, just make sure you get through the door. Don't try to save yourself with all these other things that you're holding on to. Let go of them. And that, that requires a lot of striving and struggling on our part to let go of all of our other saviors, to let go of all the other things that we think are going to get us into the kingdom, that are going to bring us happiness, that are going to bring us peace. That's a, that's a straining and a struggling and a striving. One of the verses that I think is a helpful cross-reference is in John chapter 10. And John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to people, and he says, labor for that which really lasts, right? He's saying, work for things that are really important. Don't labor, don't work for things that don't last. So then the guys respond like, well, so, so what is it? How do we do the work that God requires us? What, what is the work that God requires of us? And Jesus answers, this is in uh, John 6.29, It's in John 6. John 6, 29, Jesus answers, the work that God requires is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So I think that helps us make sense of it, right? So so we have this paradigm that we're saved not by our work. We're not saved by our struggling or our striving. We're we're saved by Jesus' striving. I would say that's a beautiful way to understand the gospel. And we need to work out, so then how are we saved by our striving and how are we not saved by our striving? So we would say a great summary of the gospel is that we can't strive enough to earn God's love. We can't be perfect. We need a Jesus to strive and struggle for us. He's the one that was righteous in our place. He's the one that took our sins upon himself on the cross. He's the one that died and rose from the grave conquering sin and death once and for all. So he's our victor, our hero, our champion. So in that sense, we're not saved by our striving. We're saved by Jesus' striving. But again, we have to wrestle with, Jesus says here, strive, wrestle, strain. And so what is the striving? What is the wrestling? John 6, 29, the wrestling, the work is to trust Jesus because our hearts are going to want to trust everything else. We want everything else to save us. I want my abilities to save me. I want to be just this great minister, and I want that to be enough so that when I come to the day of judgment, I can say, God, look at all these people I helped. Doesn't that make you love me, God? God says, no, I love you because of what my son has done. I want to say, God, I'm a nice guy, and everybody is my friend. Isn't that enough to make me worthy of your love, God? He says, no. No, my son is what makes you worthy of my love. So I have to strive to let go of these things that I love that I think are going to save me to trust in Jesus. Does that mean I quit the ministry and I never am nice to people anymore? No, that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I have to strive to let go of those as false saviors. And for all of you, you have these things that you hold on to that you think and you slip into thinking, this can save me. This will give me security. You know what? 
if we have enough money in the bank, everything's going to be okay. If my kids are happy, that's all that matters. If I have someone that loves me, then everything's going to be all right. As long as I have my health, right? We say these statements of like, that's really what ultimately matters in life. And Jesus says, strive to make me the door. Strive to recognize that I'm the only thing that really matters. That's what he's asking us to strain and to struggle, struggle towards. Sometimes I use this term uh, that is kind of an echo from Colossians, systems of righteousness. You know, what's the system that you've constructed in your life that you say, if I do these things and I do it right, then I'm going to be righteous and I'm going to impress people. I'm going to impress God. I'm going to impress other people and everything's going to be okay in life. What is your system of righteousness? Is it being a great mom or dad? Is it being a great employee? Is it having a lot of respect? Is it having money? What, what are the things that you think, if I, just, if I can just achieve that, then everything will be okay? And Jesus says, strive to come to me as the true door. But the next thing that we see is only Jesus judges. Only Jesus judges. This is really the hard part of the text. This is the part we're really going to struggle with as modern people because um, we don't like judgment. Uh, we don't like that word. We don't like to think about it. Um, so I would just, again, say by way of question to you, what is it about us as 21st century people that are so repulsed by the idea of God judging, right? Um, if you read Facebook or read blogs, you come quickly to the realization that there's a whole swath of people that call themselves Christians that believe the bad God of the Old Testament used to judge people, and now the good God of the New Testament doesn't judge anyone. And that's, a, that's a pretty twisted misunderstanding of the Bible. God does judge sin. I I would say actually the reason grace is so sweet and so reassuring and so wonderful is because we know the the other option is judgment. So, So let's look at the text here. Look at verse 25. He puts himself in the story, which is really interesting. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Okay, so it's not immediately obvious that Jesus is the master and the Lord, but it'll become more obvious as it goes on. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. We have here a scene of people being let into the party and people being cast out. The word used later is uh, reclining at table in the kingdom of God, right? So the big metaphor that God goes back to again and again is like drinking and partying and having a big feast. Uh, Jesus likes to use the, the wedding feast imagery. Heaven is like a great wedding feast. There's a lot to drink. There's a lot to eat. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's happy. It's a great party. It's a great banquet. Um, So again and again, this is a metaphor from the Old Testament. Jesus pulls it into the New Testament. That's what heaven is like. It's sweet. It's fellowship. It's a party. It's a celebration with family and friends. You're eating. You're drinking. You're laughing. You're having a good time. That's what heaven is like. And we don't want to not be there. And Jesus says there's going to be people that are there, and there are going to be people that are not there. And again, that's really hard for us to wrap our mind around as, as modern people. There are people that are locked out. And again, Jesus is putting himself in the story because he's saying, the answer will be, we hung out with you. We, we drank with you. You taught in our streets, right? There's echoes here that show us that Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the householder. I'm the master of the house. I'm the one that 
locks the door. I'm the one that protects the party. And we have to wrestle with that. Because again, as modern people, we like to just think about Jesus as the forgiver. And we sometimes forget that Jesus is the judge. And it's very common language in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And we'll look at some of the sermons in the book of Acts later in the spring. But in the book of Acts, repeatedly the apostles would talk about forgiveness of sin for sure, which is, which is critical, right? We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He takes away our sins. He gives us his righteousness. That's at the heart of the gospel, and it's beautiful, and it's sweet. But they would also talk about Jesus rose from the dead, which proves he's the champion of the universe, and he's going to judge everyone. I mean, they would just say that again and again. It's not usually a part of our language and our thinking. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is going to decide who's in and who's out. Jesus is going to destroy the wicked. Jesus is going to cast out those that don't belong at the party. And again, we just need to wrestle with what is it about us as 21st century people that we think we're so smart and we think we're kind of too cool for this ancient book and we know, you know, really there can't be anything like judgment. That can't really exist in our universe. Why, why do we think that? I think it's a good question to ask again and again. Why is it that we have this thing in our mind that, no, judgment can't be real. Judgment can't happen. Nobody's ever going to punish me for my sin. That couldn't really be a, po- a part of how God has organized things uh, in creation. Again and again, the Bible says it is. And, and it's balanced with that there's forgiveness and grace for those that come to Jesus. So we need to recognize the balance, but we also need to recognize the horror of being locked out, the horror of this doctrine of hell. He describes it here of gnashing of teeth, the weeping, right, being locked outside the party. and other places, Jesus describes it like the garbage dump Gehenna where they just burned dead bodies and refuse and it just stunk and it was just nasty and it was just destruction. Other places, he says, it's a place where the worm will not be satisfied. It never dies and the fire cannot be quenched. It burns forever. And so there's all this language. It's just, repul- again, repulsive to us as modern people. I, and I put myself in the same boat. I'm like, yeah, I'm a modern person. When I read those things, I, I kind of wince, right? What is it about us as modern people that wince at the idea of judgment, that wince at the idea of being, peop- uh, being cast out? It's, for one thing, a very painful experience. And I think Jesus is trying to connect with the visceral pain of how we don't want to be cast out. We don't want to be the people on the outside. And I think Jesus wants us to feel that way. So I would encourage you, as you wrestle with that, to recognize Jesus is saying, yeah, that's a bad feeling. You don't want that. Hell is terrible. You don't want to be cast out. Um, Any of you ever been locked out of your house? Has that ever happened to you? Very frustrating. I mean, I don't think that's as bad as hell, but it's bad, right? Uh, One time, my wife and I were on our honeymoon. One time, we were on our honeymoon. And... (laughs) We missed our flight. It was crazy. I have a picture here. Have you ever missed a flight? And you're like banging on the window. There's a guy, there, there's a silhouette, so you can't tell, but there are tears running down his face, okay? It's a horrible feeling. It's frustrating, right, to miss out. Or maybe, maybe even worse, it's like a party you haven't been invited to. The funny thing about when my wife and I missed our flight, I got to tell you the rest of the story because it's great. So we were 20-year-old punk kids that had just gotten married, and we missed the flight, and then the coolest thing happened. The late, We were walking... I was like, I guess I'm going to spend all the money I have to buy another ticket. And we're walking down to another counter. And the lady comes running. And she's like, the plane came back. There was a bad light. They had to bring it in and get it fixed. So we get to go back on the plane. All these people are looking at us like, why would they let these, you know, why would they come back for these dumb kids? Um, but there's this, there's this horrible feeling of being locked out, right? 
And we've all had that experience, and Jesus is king in on that common human experience, the experience of, you know, there's a great party and you didn't get invited, you're locked out of the house, whatever it might be. It's not a good experience. And I think an important part of us understanding how sweet it is to be at the table is to understand a little bit of what it is to be not at the table. And we've all had the experience of, of pain, of losing loved ones, of being sick, of not being invited to the party, of being locked out. We know that that's the way the universe is. We know that's the way the universe is. It exists. It's out there. God says he will condemn the wicked and he will give blessings to the righteous. And the righteous are righteous because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus is judge. We need to wrestle with that. We need to recognize that we're modern people and we don't like the idea, but it's a part of the story and somehow it makes grace sweeter. I believe we should be motivated more by God's love and his grace than we should by fear of judgment. But we need to recognize that grace and forgiveness make sense in a context of there being judgment. There's no judgment. We don't even need forgiveness. If there's no problem with sin, if there's no death associated with sin, we don't need God's grace to give us new life. So I think it's just important for us to wrestle with that as modern people and to understand that if we go all the way down that road, grace won't even be grace anymore. Forgiveness won't even be forgiveness anymore. It won't even make sense anymore if we throw out judgment. Jesus is the judge. And we also need to remember as well that even though God judges the wicked and there's something righteous about that biblically, um, that God doesn't delight in judgment. Um, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Uh, Ezekiel 18, 23 is a famous passage that makes that clear. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So hell is real. Judgment is real. It's possible to be outside. So there is a kind of exclusivity where Jesus says, yeah, it's, it's possible to be locked out. That's why it's all the more important that we would strive to come to Jesus because he's the only way in. The last thing I want us to see is that only Jesus reaches the unreachable. Only Jesus reaches the unreachable. And this uh, comes up in verses 29 and 30. Uh, this is the doctrine. This is the concept that we like better. Uh, we like more of the, you know, come one, come all. Jesus loves everybody, uh, especially if we're aware ethnically that um, you know, the Jews thought they were the only good people, and most of us are not Jews, so most of us fit into this category of we're the everybody that God loves. We're the unreachable in the Jews' mind, the unsavable. So look at 29 and 30 with me again. He says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's this great reversal. Those of us that think we're in, if we think we're in by just how awesome we are, he's saying, then you're not really in. But if you recognize that you're only in because of who Jesus is, if you recognize your lastness, you'll be elevated to firstness. If you think you're first, then you will be demoted to lastness. Jesus is always talking about these reversals in the kingdom of God. And he says there are going to be people coming from all over the place. There's all these Old Testament passages that talk about it all these Old Testament promises that say all the nations will come to God. And Isaiah and Micah and Malachi, and I just looked up a bunch of them this week. They, they have this imagery of the great feast and the great party and the wine and the food and the mountain. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is, it being lifted up above all the other mountains and all the people streaming in to listen and worship and love God and honor him. 
So there's all these visions in the Old Testament that, frankly, the Jews weren't sure what to do with those. So the Jews would kind of revert to, all right, well, we know all the Jews are going to be saved, and then there's some kind of maybe secondary salvation for the nations, but we don't really care about that, right? And Jesus is saying, no, all those Old Testament prophecies are true, and it's going to be happening, he says, through him. He's the one that lifts up Jerusalem. He's the one that lifts up Mount Zion. So we see all this poetic language in the Old Testament about the people of Israel, non-Jews or as people that aren't familiar with the Old Testament. We kind of don't know what to do with it. We're like, okay, Israel, Jacob, Jerusalem, Zion. I don't know what any of those words mean. But he's saying salvation is going to come to the world through Israel and through specifically Jesus, the true Israelite, the perfect Jew, the one they've all been waiting for. And so it's exclusive in the sense that God is working through this one man who is fully God and fully man. But it's worldwide in its reach. There will be many, he says, who will come to the table. The irony of exclusivity here is that only Jesus reaches the unreachable, right? So so those that say all roads lead to heaven think they're being all open-minded, but they're undermining the actual way that we get there. So if all roads lead to heaven, like who, want, who wants to be in a heaven when it doesn't matter? Kind of like I was saying earlier, if, if we don't really need to be forgiven for anything, if we've never done anything wrong, if everybody's good, if there's no evil, if there's no good and bad, none of it really matters, right? We just kind of float along through life, do whatever we want, then, then Nietzsche is right. Whoever's strong wins. Jesus says no right and wrong matters. There is judgment for sin. He took the judgment upon himself on the cross, and he offers all of us that forgiveness and that grace, and all people can come through him. Jesus reaches the unreachable, people like you and me, the outsiders. So one lens is we want to recognize that we are all those kinds of outsiders, right? We're an ethnically diverse, socially diverse, mixed bag of people who represent every sin in the book in this room, right? Every single one of us. We've all got our pet sins, and all of us are forgiven through Jesus. And we all come together at the foot of the cross as brothers and sisters because of what he's done. So none of us are better than anybody else. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all one because of what Jesus has done for us. So at that level, we recognize that we're the unreachable that Jesus has reached. At another level, we need to recognize that those that are on the inside always need to be concerned that we're not presuming upon God's grace in the sense of not assuming that it's because we come and observe worship services or because we grew up in America or because we're loosely associated with Christianity that we're saved. No, it's only through Jesus, right? So earlier he said, just because just you ate and drank with me and you heard me teaching, you observed me, that doesn't mean you're saved. We've got to come through the narrow door of Jesus himself. And here again, he's saying he's reaching all the unreachable, all the people from east and west and north and south are going to come and enjoy this banquet together. But behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So my kind of second lens I want you to look through this with is who are the people that you consider unreachable? It's helpful first to recognize, hey, we were unreachable and Jesus reached us. But then now to recognize, you know, there's probably people that I consider as unreachable that I kind of have an arrogant attitude towards. I have a, a blank slide here so you can use your imagination. You just think in your mind, who is it? Is it, is it the people with particular sins, right? Is it really greedy people, sexually immoral people? Like, are there certain sins that you're like, those sins, those are the really bad ones Jesus can't forgive. Those people can't be 
reach? Is it Muslim terrorists? Is it corrupt politicians? It's, it's the time of year for that one, right? Um, who, who are the people that you don't think Jesus can reach? And I recognize that we should have a healthy humility about ourselves, because I was unreachable. I was a sinner. Jesus can reach that sinner too. We're, we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. So we should be humble because Jesus says that the outsiders will, will enter before the religious. And we should also be inviting to other people. And just recognize, you know what? There's somebody in the back of my mind that I think, eh, they're not worth talking to. They're not worth inviting. They're not worth loving. They're beyond, they're beyond the reach of God. Recognize no, nobody is. Jesus wants to use us as his hands and feet in the world, as his people, to reach the unreachable that he is reaching. So we should invite all the nations to himself. It really makes sense of all these Old Testament passages that, that say, yeah, all the nations are going to come. The book of Psalms, they're always in their exclusive Jewish worship inviting all the nations to come to God. That should be the same attitude we have as well. We should recognize that what we do here is weird. We sing praises to Jesus. We believe he saved us. We believe he loves us. We study his word. All of that is exclusive and weird. That's okay. Recognize that God wants to invite other people to himself. Don't be afraid to invite people into the weirdness. Don't be afraid to invite people into the weirdness because Jesus is the only way. As we wrap up again, just thinking about his exclusivity, one of the things I was really struck by this week is just the piling on of terms of fulfillment on behalf of Jesus throughout the New Testament. Um, Jesus again and again says that he's the real temple. He's the real lamb of God. He's the bread of life. He is the living waters that will satisfy. Um, He's everything that we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah at at multiple levels. It's just kind of a piling on of terms. And we see real clearly in John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the door. He's the exclusive and only way into God's presence. Jesus is the door. He says, I'm like the door for the sheep. I let the sheep in. I keep the bad guys out. I'm the protector, but I'm also the one that loves and cares for the sheep. He's the door. We can only enter through him. I want to invite you personally to to let go of those other saviors that maybe you've been holding on to, to let go of those other things that you think are going to find, you're going to find satisfaction in, and to recognize that Jesus is the only way to come to Jesus and, and Jesus alone. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us through Jesus. We thank you that you delight in us because of what Jesus has done, that you set us at the great banquet, that we get to be a part of the great party, not not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. So we thank you that Jesus took our sins. We thank you that Jesus gives us his inheritance and his righteousness. We pray that you would Unite us with him by faith. You'd help us to love others because you loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.